major elections across the world are fast approaching. But what risk does AI pose to their integrity? We've previously seen foreign interference in US elections lead to the spread of disinformation, and incumbent leaders in Brazil and elsewhere leverage social media's divisive nature to their benefit. So what happens when you supercharge the ability to make digital mischief with artificial intelligence? This question is what our guest this episode, Eddie Perez, a member of the Open Source Election Technology Institute, made the focus of his job as Twitter's former head of election integrity. And this is what he worries about as AI is adopted more and more across the globe. I'm Chris Stoker-Walker, and for Human Rights Organization Article 19, this is Tectonic. Eddie Perez, welcome to Tectonic. It is a pleasure to be with you, Chris. Thank you. Fantastic. And yeah, thank you for joining us. I'm, I'm very keen to talk to you because you have a pretty significant CV. You were Director of Product Management for Societal Health at Twitter for around about a year before Elon Musk's takeover, which I'm, I'm sure could probably itself be the subject of an entirely separate podcast. But in that time, you specialized on preparing the platform for various elections and yes. obviously part of the OSED Institute as well, focusing on that infrastructure behind elections. Yeah. So what's involved, Eddie, in, in preparing social media platforms for big landmark moments like elections? And mm-hmm. which ones came in your time in the sort of year or so that you were at Twitter? Sure. Well, great question, Chris. And I'm sure it comes as no surprise that at a platform like Twitter to prepare for content moderation in the midst of major elections, um, it really involves many, many teams of people. During the year that I was at Twitter, the two most important elections that we were focused on, uh, one no surprise was the United States midterm elections. Part of the story in Georgia and all across the midterm map, the power of polarization in most places. Uh, which of course took Democrats place in November of 2022. Uh, the other one, which is one of the world's largest democracies, uh, was in Brazil. The president's office may have conceded defeat, but many of Jair Bolsonaro's millions of supporters have not. By virtue of the size of both of these, they were what Twitter referred to as tier one elections. They're really kind of, you know, the big deal elections with large scope, uh, many, many users that are going to be reading and using information about the elections. Generally speaking, the process of preparing for an election like that involves a lot of cross-functional teams that include people that are working on public policy. So they might, for example, be in regular conversation with regional authorities on the ground. Um, They're paying attention to what's going on with local election officials or in Brazil, they're paying attention to the requirements and requests from the electoral court, for example. Um, In addition to those policy teams, there are also uh, product teams and engineers. And together, preparing for an election many, many, many months in advance, the most important thing is the creation of a risk assessment. And we do that for each country based on on the regional information we have from people on the ground. And there's a lot of uh, imagination and prognostication. What are all of the things that could potentially go wrong? And we literally create matrices of all of those potential risks and threats. What's the likelihood that they might happen? What would be the severity of those things if they were to happen? And once those threats and those threat drivers have been identified, 
then it's really just a question of ensuring that we have the clear policies in place to decide, okay, if someone is putting certain types of information out there, what are we going to count as a violation of the policy or not? And is it clearly expressed so that users can understand that? In addition to that, operationalizing everything, well, once you have the policies, once you have a sense of the threats, you need to train large numbers of people, what we called agents, that are actually looking at all the discrete pieces of information on the platform. Uh, they might be looking at an individual tweet. They might be looking at an image of some type. And they basically need to have decision trees to help them understand if you see this, this, and this, then that's a violation of policy and you might need to escalate this. If you do not, then that piece of, of information is okay and can be left alone. And those are the kind of general frameworks among all these cross-functional teams that are going on. And, and all of that ultimately then gets supported by engineering and by product features. And so just to cite a couple examples, one of the tools that we might use at, at Twitter was called real-time matching. If there were instances where we knew that certain pieces of disinformation were being distributed at scale, well, there's ways that you can see, hey, there's all these different accounts and they're using exactly the same words to say exactly the same thing. And having the tools to identify those matches um, or to do what we called the prevention of amplifying bad information. That's examples of the engineering piece. So as I said, very large cross-functional teams happens many, many, many months in advance based on an assessment of the risks on the ground. And is it fair to say that the assessment of those risks is primarily focused on disinformation these days? That's certainly a very big part of it. And the, the, where the rubber really meets the road, you, we always want to be particularly careful about when disinformation narratives could potentially lead to actual political violence. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today, we will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections. Um, that's one of the most important things that we talk about, which is that, you know, what is going on on these social media platforms is not limited only to the platforms. Those harms, again, as we saw very dramatically in the U.S. with January 6th, for example. Those harms can unfold in real time, in real life. They're not simply virtual challenges. So, yes, political violence and, and particularly the situation with Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil was something we had to watch closely. And how do you actually bridge that gap between the online and the offline? Because, you know, as you mentioned, there is increasingly this link between the two. But I imagine that Twitter maybe feels they only have a responsibility for the online, or, or is that incorrect? Um, it does extend beyond that. I mean, I, I think the shortest answer to your question is if a policy is thoughtfully written and is clearly expressed, um, a well-done policy is going to have to address precisely those bridges. What are the points at which something might make a jump from simply being harmful on the platform to really posing a threat in real life? And by recognizing that that's the moment where a social media platform might have a really, you know, a role to play. Um, at that moment, you can think of it a little bit that if you were, for example, to take down information at that point, that's having that real-time effect because it can be a little bit like the fire break. It's a little bit like, you know, you're, you're finally going to put something in the ground so that the wildfire doesn't keep spreading. The other analogy is that sort of, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. 
And I think that that's a critical part of bridging the gap between the virtual and the real. I'm Ron DeSantis, and I'm running for president to lead our great American comeback. I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. That's why I'm running for re-election. We obviously have uh, an election coming up in the U.S. shortly. You mentioned how the preparation for the midterms in your time at Twitter was, uh, I guess, shaped in some ways by what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 U.S. presidential election. We have candidates well into campaigning for the 2024 presidential election, and they have a history of being tampered with by way of trying to sway public opinion through social media. Um, And we can't overlook, I guess, also the fact that we're in the age of AI. So what might we start to see as these kind of, you mentioned a firebreak there, these kind of flammable elements come Mm -hmm. together and and the the sort of, the temperature rises, what impact will that have on, on voters? Sure. You know, the immediate answer is that generative artificial intelligence is going to present tremendous new opportunities for not only political campaigns, but for bad actors more generally uh, to manipulate voters and and to deceive them. So, so that's the most immediate short answer is there's going to be a much bigger toolkit for people to produce and distribute and disseminate disinformation on a much wider scale at a much lower cost than before and to do it much, much more quickly. Um, I do want to emphasize right now, there are a lot of journalistic outlets that are correctly saying, look, this is going to be the first major, uh, in the next year, I mean, to put this in perspective, there's in the neighborhood of 160 major elections that are going to take place between now and next year. It's not just the United States, of course, it includes places like India, Russia, Ukraine, Egypt, Venezuela. So the democratic processes and the threats to them are happening around the world. It is an inflection point in terms of AI for the reasons that I said. And I think that probably what we're going to start seeing is the manipulation can happen across many different mediums. Um, It's not just text. AI makes it possible for people to clone audio. Um, It's going to make the possibility of deep fake videos, which are essentially synthetic fabricated videos that can very easily make it appear as if a politician, a candidate, somebody that people know it can certainly look like they're on video and having a press conference and potentially saying outrageous things, but it's all fabricated. It never actually happened. Um, And the other thing that I do want to emphasize is, although there is rightly that focus on how political campaigns in particular are rushing to take advantage of these new AI tools, uh, many of which they don't understand very well, Mm. they they even admit it. They admit that they don't understand it. And and I, I recently, you know, in... Toronto and and in other places, there were some very well-publicized gaffes uh, with AI in the context of a campaign. Artificial intelligence is now showing up everywhere, including in the political arena. Mayoral candidate Anthony Fury's campaign team is admitting to the use of images generated by AI and campaign material. Well, questions were raised about a photo of a couple sitting at a table because the woman appears to have three hands. Even the the people and candidates are saying things like, well, you know, we're going to have some fun playing with this stuff while we figure out how it works. I read that and it sort of gives you 
chills because a lot of people, and indeed even the technology developers themselves, will tell you that they can't see around all of the corners. They don't always know how those things work. And so there's simply going to be a lot more opportunities to manipulate that information. A couple other things that I will mention, in in addition to rapidly creating text, audio, video, there are some very important capabilities uh, that are typically referred to as micro-targeting. Micro-targeting with artificial intelligence is going to be a very powerful new avenue, particularly in the context of elections. Take the United States, for example, where major elections can very frequently be decided in just a handful of swing states at the margins, just a few thousand key votes in one particular state, artificial intelligence and, and the ability, because it is more dynamic, I mean, the fact that you can send information to people of a certain demographic, a certain party, and because AI has the ability to then interpret and to create responses to that person based on the response that it received, creates a much more dynamic environment where it's as if you can really fine tune and hone whether you're getting the emotional response from the very specific people that you're trying to get to in the hopes of determining the outcome of an election. Mm -hmm. So I would say that micro-targeting is another really critical piece. The last one that I will mention that, that I think is critical is, you know, in 2016, nation states like Russia had entire troll farms where you had the equivalent of the Russian secret service that was devoting huge sums of money at the nation state level to create factories, to create this disinformation and to push it overseas. Um, Now, with these tools available to consumers and the general public, what some people have said is, this is now the democratization of disinformation. Anybody can do it. You don't have to be a software coder. You don't have to be a nation state. Um, This really makes it possible to, to create this stuff as I said, much more quickly at lower cost. And that's the thing, right? I guess we know of that example in 2016, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who has since entered the headlines for an entirely other reason, set up the Internet Research Agency, St. Petersburg, essentially army unit, where he paid folks, I think it was something like $700 a month in order to pump out this propaganda. get a chat GPT plus subscription for $20 a month, suddenly that becomes industrialized. Is that without you know wanting to give folks a playbook on how to do this, but also being aware that many of our listeners will probably be trying to ward off mm-hmm. these issues. You know, what is the generative AI playbook to kind of see disinformation? What's what's the method that sort of keeps you awake at night as someone who has looked at this of that kind of generative AI-powered uh, Cambridge Analytica on steroids. Mm-hmm. I, I think the thing that keeps me up at night um, and, and that I think that, again, bad actors or sloppy actors are going to take advantage of, um, one of the big challenges is, again, how quickly this stuff is going to unfold. Um, the fact that you can disseminate disinformation. Let's say that you create a fake or scandalous video uh, of a prominent politician, for example, and then once it hits the real world, and then you have people responding to it, and that in turn engenders another response, 
what in the past might have taken hours or days for a campaign or somebody else to try to pivot and respond to it or to recover or to try to uh, say, hey, general public, these, these are the facts. This is what's really going on. The counter to all of those things can now happen in a matter of minutes. I mean, it, it really is like that chess game where every move can happen at a pace that is much more quickly than the past because by simply putting in a number of prompts, you can generate, as I said, you could generate entire text articles. You could very quickly generate an additional video. Um, and so I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. You know, it's natural, for example, to say, well, gosh, it's really going to be incumbent upon responsible journalists like yourself and others and, and you know, particularly the elite journalistic outlets that are sort of the arbiters of, of you know, the agenda, like, like what's real and what's not and so forth. Um, I don't think that they have any neat or clear answers on how they're going to be doing these things. I mean, there, there are already today documented examples where people can ask of a major news outlet, have you figured out your standards? Have you figured out your own playbook? Do you know how you're going to operationalize this? And I note that there are cases where they're just, either because they haven't figured it out or because they don't want to talk about it, we have something we're working on. And and uh, again, I, I think that that is a little bit nerve-wracking for all of us. Uh, it's a very fast pace. And it's not just journalism that has this responsibility as well. The platforms do. I mean, Absolutely. I know you've been removed from a while from Twitter and other social media platforms. You keep your all in, yeah. I suppose, through the Institute. But you know, do you think that the platforms themselves are any more prepared than journalism isn't? I, I don't. And in fact, that's a great question, Chris, because one of the things I wanted to mention that in some ways is really a very unfortunate kind of perfect storm of what's happening here is I would actually argue that at precisely the moment that this new class of tools is going to create these new threats, you know, for the very first time, people are saying we're going to have a, it's going to be the AI online presidential election um, at the same time that that is happening, I would argue that if anything, big tech and the traditional tech platforms are actually, from a resource standpoint, from their personnel, from their own internal knowledge, they're actually worse off than they were many months ago or a year, or a year ago. If you just look at the simple facts, again, to, to take Twitter that we obviously started with, that's just one company, obviously very influential. Um, before Elon Musk took over, Twitter had close to 8,000 employees. Turmoil at Twitter, the social media giant appearing to be in disarray after as many as half of its employees were laid off under new owner Elon Musk. So how do you run the company with only 20% of the staff? Uh, it turns out uh, you don't need uh, all that many people to run Twitter. But 80%? That's a lot. Um, yes. Uh, over, I mean, if you're not trying to run some sort of... Uh, glorified activist organization uh, with, with uh, and you don't care that much about censorship, then uh, you can really let go of a lot of people, it turns out. <laughs> I mean, it has absolutely been gutted and decimated, which means that not simply do you not have enough warm bodies and enough agents to be looking at all of these, you know, pieces of uh, uh, media and, and tweets and so forth, um, but there's just been a tremendous amount of institutional knowledge that has been lost. And it's not just Twitter. Across the technology industry, I mean, you, you look at companies like Facebook, you look at Instagram, you look at Google, um, the entire industry uh, for macroeconomic reasons has had massive, massive layoffs. And so there are currently 
very large cadres of a lot of very knowledgeable, but nevertheless unemployed people that used to work in trust and safety, but they are not sitting at their desks at these platforms as they used to. And the other thing I will mention in this context that I think is, is really important and consequential is that a lot of these challenges, I, I would argue that they are actually moving from the world of traditional social media where, where trust and safety and these needs have, have really been the sharp end of the stick for the last several years. They're moving from that world into a whole new class of other companies that are not social media platforms that are producing a wide variety of AI products and tools. I think there's rightly a lot of concern. Uh, it should come as no surprise that in global capitalism, there can be quite a bit of hucksterism going on. There's a lot of uh, you know, excitement and desire to push and sell things and to do all of that mm. before we know all of the risks or perhaps before you have integrated trust and safety more fully into your product lifecycle. And so um, for all of those reasons, I think that actually we're in a less prepared place than we might have been in the past. And I guess there's also, you mentioned earlier, the democratization of these technologies mean we don't need to be focusing on the big fires, but I guess there could be lots of little fires going on. That's correct. Um, to cite just one example, you know, what a lot of people ask is, you know, what if, what could some major candidate do with these kinds of tools? And my response to that is, oh, you don't have to worry about what the major candidate or his campaign is going to do. Let's look at what their very passionate followers are going to do. Let's look at what those people that are flying under the radar that may not even be part of the official campaign, but now have new tools to create and push you know, a variety of narratives. And you, you mentioned the routing of these companies as well, and, and you know, the layoffs across the tech sector have been well documented. And you know, we've spoken in a, a previous episode to folks about some of the biases that are built into AI systems and large language models yes. towards the English language, yes. because that is what most of its training data is on. Is there kind of a, a risk of a similar thing happening on a personnel side where fewer people are being asked to do more and so they by necessity focus on the kind of higher profile elections and actually we're talking a lot here about kind of the upcoming 2024 US presidential election but it's the election in West Africa somewhere or, or the, the the election in Southeast Asia that you know could have a more pernicious effect through AI. That's absolutely correct and I'm glad that you raised that point because it's one of the biggest challenges that we always had. There is a natural tendency to focus on these very visible events in major industrialized countries. But as, as we've talked about, I mean, these dynamics are going on globally. And it really does create very real challenges. Uh, some of my most recent conversations with ex-colleagues from Twitter and just sort of, you know, tossing around ideas about why is it hard to prepare for elections? You know, the short answer was doing these things in another language across time zones without daylight savings. That's the hardest part, Eddie. That's the, and, and it really does. I mean, that is the truth. When, when, when you need to have lots of people, not everybody can speak these languages. You need to ramp up the, you know, things that might be unfolding across the international dateline. It's another day somewhere else. And all of this stuff needs to be managed and monitored 24 seven from sunup to sundown. It, it is a very, very tall order. And with those, 
two elements combined, the fact that it can be an individual that essentially sets off a, a snowball down the mountain mm -hmm. that picks up mm -hmm. momentum and the fact that we are kind of maybe by necessity focused on the elections that we know and we focus on because of our lived experience. Is there an example that you can point to in your time in this field of where a post or a comment or a, a kind of element of disinformation got seeded and had a an impact on an election and how that could be amplified through the ease of production and spreading of AI. Yeah, well, the, exa the example that you gave, I mean, there, there were a variety of elections uh, in, in Africa that just don't make it onto, you know, sort of the typical radar and what a lot of news outlets are talking about. And um, th there's very, very real harm that can happen quickly. And in a lot of other um, countries around the world, when these sorts of dynamics unfold, it's also true that it's often, you know, more marginalized peoples that can be at very serious risk very immediately. Uh, there may be uh, indigenous people in, in a certain demographic environment. Um, you have uh, situations where uh, women might particularly be at risk. So th those are definitely the kinds of things that, that we did see happen. And uh, that's how quickly it gets very real. It's like, hey, people, this is going on right now. And in some instances, you do what you can with, as I said, not enough bodies, not enough resources on, on the ground. It's very hard. Is there an element or a potential here? I, I guess we're focusing on the pernicious effects of AI. And, and, you know, for my sins, I talk to a lot of tech companies, a lot of tech companies, PRs, and I don't necessarily like often what they say, but they sometimes go, well, we have this problem with algorithms. We're going to throw another algorithm at it to sort it. Mm -hmm. Is there kind of... Can we automate some of the analysis of this and try and spot these things before they arise? Or is that kind of pie-in-the-sky, big-tech thinking? No, I don't think that's pie-in-the-sky thinking. Um, developmentally and in terms of capabilities, though, we're at a relatively early stage. Mm. I, I mean, in principle, yes, absolutely, in the same way that social media platforms for, for other types of information mediums, uh, you know, packets, as it were, in the same way that they could develop detection capabilities, we collectively, you know, whether it's the European Union, whether it is the federal government of the United States, whether it is other think tanks and responsible parties around the globe, um, they absolutely can and should be thinking about how to foster and invest in innovation to bolster our abilities to detect these types of things. In the future, automation can definitely help with all of that. There are ways that artificial intelligence is trying to manage these things for good today. But, but again, uh, this is all moved into a public sphere very rapidly and is unfolding at such a rapid pace that I think that's, that's one of the biggest challenges. Um, the other thing that's also important to note uh, in this context of you know, well, what could be done in the future or can we use automation to maybe mitigate some of these risks and so forth? It's very, very important to bear in mind that while, even in this podcast, while we might be particularly focusing even globally, let's say on the next 18 months or so, we have all these elections around the globe in the next year, it's not just what is immediately going on right now or in the context of these elections that is so important. 
Everything that is happening, all of these dynamics, all the information that is being traded, all of the prompts that are being put into these tools, everything that, that these tools are listening to on the internet, in social media, the ways that they are effectively being trained right now are going to have much longer effects for years to come. And so the interesting question is not, what's this going to do to elections in 2024? But instead to say, what is all the disinformation activity in 2024 going to mean for these tools five years from now, 10 years from now, 25 years from now? Because they are always learning in that respect. Um, and, and the last thing that I will also say that I, I haven't mentioned that is another vector that makes things hard is there is a latency in how quickly these large language models can respond to things. Hmm. They don't always have immediate information in real time. I, I will tell you, I actually, I, I have it right here. Um, and as an example for this uh, podcast, very recently, one of my colleagues and I went into chat GPT and we simply asked the very basic question, did Bolsonaro win the October 2022 Brazilian election? And as recently as just days ago, these tools are very careful to say, hey, you know, my data was last updated about a month ago in May. I have limited knowledge. And in fact, ChatGPT quite literally said, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry, but as an AI an model, my responses are based on information available only up to September 21. And I don't have access to real-time data or the ability to predict future events. That's just one example of how these things can remain frozen in time, they're not immediately updating themselves with the most important information, which makes the challenge even harder. Yeah, we're always fighting last time's war, yeah. I suppose. Yes, that's correct. And, and and speaking of that, I mean, let's let's go back to last time and the time before in the US. You know, it's a relatively well-established fact that Russia interfered in these elections. Uh, I mean... Are you concerned that they could just do so again now, but with an additional element of firepower through AI? And if so, what should we be looking for? Well, in general, I think that we should always be concerned, and everybody does need to be aware that, as we say in the industry, these are adversarial spaces, okay? These are not, this is really real world politics at a nation state level. We can get into these sort of quaint debates about, oh, free speech on Twitter and different people's opinions and everything else. And I'm constantly reminding people, look, this is not about a bunch of little atomic individuals, everybody with their own opinion, that are chatting. These are complex technological systems that are being gamed by nation state actors that have a lot of intelligence and access to funds and so forth. And just the simple fact that I think we do need to constantly be reminding people this is an actual problem and it it really does exist and these aren't simply differences of opinion um the second thing however is even before ai came along and as an election expert one of the things that i think has been most sobering is that from 2016 to 2020 the sowing of disinformation and the lack of trust in the legitimacy of election outcomes was accomplished so well, the greatest thing that I would say Russia and other nation state actors did was they got us doing it to ourselves. 
we arrived at a place, and again, not just in the U.S., in other countries around the world, where you no longer need to worry about external outside forces that are generating and carrying the water for the disinformation. This stuff has become domesticated now. We're, we're carrying the water ourselves, and we are dividing ourselves. So in that sense, I actually, while, while we always need to remain concerned that these things do happen at that nation-state level, they don't even need to be putting in the same level of investment and focus for us to be suffering with problems just as bad. And, and again, and now that we have tools that are this easy to use, I absolutely expect that the scale of that is simply going to be even more. Because we've seen entire websites filled with chat GPT created disinformation. That's correct. That's exactly right. Even to the point, and again, and one of the things that's very challenging for all of us, I mean, one of the most important things, and we do still need to be talking about this, and natural questions like, well, what do you do? What can a voter do? And there is, correctly, a lot of good information about the importance, for example, of media literacy. You know, learning tips and tools for how people can identify something that might look suspicious, or how can you quickly check sources, or what does it mean to look at, well, what, what was this outlet that it appears that this came from? Or in the same context, um, if you saw something that appeared inflammatory about the elections, and it's coming from an article that appears to speak in a very authoritative voice, well, can I go to my local election official? Can I go to my county clerk? And can I double check? Hmm. Can I actually try to get the real story that way? But one of the challenges, again, is, as I said, you really can have these very authoritative sounding entire white papers, and many of them will even have copious citations. But many people have also pointed out these generative AI tools, they're producing nonsense citations. They're producing citations that do not actually exist. So it is a bit of a morass. It's, it's a real thicket for people to wade through. But those are still the kinds of things we need to be paying attention to. Um, and we do still need the help of important federal agencies, like in the United States, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency that was such a critical part in 2020 of you know rumor control and trying to respond and debunk things. Um, there remains a very important role, uh, and, and in the EU as well, uh, for those kinds of functions, um, they're just going to have to be doing it at a faster pace and responding to more of it. Mm. And it's a little bit of armchair quarterbacking, I appreciate. But if you were back in that seat at Twitter right now, looking at the upcoming US presidential election and the slate of others mm -hmm. that you mentioned, mm -hmm. what would you be doing? I think the most important thing that I would be doing that is different is um, I, I think it's very natural at a place like Twitter and a lot of other big tech companies, just because you do have to implement and operationalize things, and this is true, I suppose, of any industry, you, you get used to how you've done things. You do have a certain playbook. You have your certain teams. You're used to responding to elections in a certain way. And I think that one of the biggest challenges for big tech right now is that they do have those playbooks. They are built on a prior era with very different types of disinformation that is being distributed in different ways and at a slower pace, I think one of the most important things I would be doing if I was at Twitter today is I would be looking and asking myself, how can a big platform like Twitter look beyond its blinders and start talking to AI developers a lot 
more closely. I would say to myself, I need to understand at a deeper level uh, the capabilities of your AI tools. I need to understand, you know, how these things are actually behaving in order to have a vision of what detection might look like. And I don't really think that right now, I, again, at, at, I, I'm not going to say that it's not happening at all, but things are early enough that I think that those bridges between traditional social media platforms and newly emerging AI developers, um, there's a lot more to go there. And it's in really incumbent on those AI developer uh, and, and those additional companies because they are not like a traditional social media platform and haven't had to think that way, we cannot assume that they have processes related to trust and safety as part of their product development. That's a whole new language and a whole new set of concepts that they also need to learn. And that's why, as I mentioned, having so many you know workers in the industry that do have this knowledge, I fully expect and I hope that they will be pushed out into many new industries and new corners of technology that um, are just not as accustomed to this because they need to be. Absolutely. It's an interesting time ahead. It is, absolutely. Eddie Perez, thank you so much for joining us. Such a pleasure to talk with you, Chris, and thank you for covering this very important topic. Um, it's critical for us to be protecting democracy around the globe, so thank you for all of your efforts. Thanks for listening to the second episode of Tectonic, a new podcast from Article 19. We hope you'll join us for future episodes, which will release every fortnight and look at the wide variety of ways that the seismic shifts we're currently seeing in technology can affect our freedom of expression. I'm Chris Stokel-Walker. Your producers this episode were Christopher Hooten and Nicola Kelly, with theme music and original score by Julian Wharton. If you would like to leave us a star rating or review wherever you're listening, that would be hugely appreciated. It really makes a difference to our show. Thank you, and see you next time.